I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, good morning, everybody. I am recording this super early at 7.30 on a early morning for you all in order to get this done, but I wouldn't want to start my day any other way. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to cover for this week because in the past I had had kind of like a lineup of things that I knew I wanted to do and I was a bit stuck this week. So I went and looked to see who has birthdays coming up or, you know, what January the month is like known for, for people or events or whatever. And one of the things that kept popping up was Dolly Parton. And Dolly, I think, is a very interesting choice for a feminist fave because she has lived her life as such a feminist, but she has shied away from that word throughout her entire career and her entire life. And it's very complicated. But Dolly is an absolute powerhouse and exemplifies so many feminist traits that I think would make her a great feminist fave for the week. In preparation for this week's episode, I watched a fantastic documentary on Netflix called Here I Am, which started off with Dolly saying the following, I know I look totally bizarre and artificial, but I'm totally real inside. I couldn't think of a better way to describe Dolly Parton. She appears larger than life, though she is pint-sized. She has the smallest waist of anyone I've ever seen, but it's accompanied by a massive bosom and a butt that Kim could only dream of. 
Her hair, or should I say wig, is big and blonde, and her makeup is bright and sparkly. Her wardrobe is as technicolored as a pride parade, and her voice is high and loud enough to grab the attention of anybody. She also has gutter language. Max knew a guy at one point who had worked in the studio with Dolly, and the guy was in the booth getting the sound ready for her, so he was like, talk to me, like sound guys do when they want to get levels, and Dolly responds, you mean dirty? (laughs) And that's like one of my favorite stories I've ever heard of Dolly. One of Dolly's longtime friends, Jane Fonda, and a previous feminist fave on this show, describes Dolly as conveying a feminist message in disguise, as something that is more palatable for the general public. They talk about how Dolly never wants to alienate any of her fans, and she has a wide variety of fans from all sorts of political, religious, and socioeconomic backgrounds, and in a lot of ways, Dolly can relate to them all. Jane said, She is first and foremost an entertainer. She wants people to feel good. So if she feels that identifying as a feminist will make some of those people who love her uncomfortable, she's not going to say that. But her life is the life of a feminist, which means a woman who has fought to realize herself, to actualize her full self. And that's funny to me because I personally love how uncomfortable that I make certain people by mentioning the fact that I'm a feminist. But I also really understand this because, you know, I've discussed on the show that I work for a family of Trumpers, as I call them. And there are certain things that, you know, they don't say anything that's hateful or terrible. And I don't really even know what both parents' thoughts are on all of it because I've, I'm never going to ask. I don't want to know. You know what I mean? But, um, Like, you know, they mentioned Chick-fil-A the other day, which I get is like a lot of people eat Chick-fil-A, but I would normally be like, they're anti-gay and hate women. But I like kind of held my tongue a little bit and like didn't make the normal quips that I would have with anybody else because it's uncomfortable. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't, especially like in a family that I work for and things like that, like it it is kind of strange. Um, But for the most part, I really love making people feel uncomfortable when they do things that are shitty and I can be feminist at them and um, make the situation better. So Dolly and I are not alike in that situation. She really just wants everyone to feel like she's their aunt or godmother or someone that's like a member of their family and she doesn't want to do anything to push people away. In the 1960s and 70s, she was often asked her opinions on the women's rights movement, if she supported the ERA, etc. And she always had the best quippy responses to any question. She has stated that she has refrained from associating with the word feminist because of the connotation it has of being anti-man. Dolly is very close with the men in her family and the men that she's worked with. And in the documentary, she said, I've known more good men than I've known bad. Once in an interview, she was asked about something she had said once on women's liberation and burning bras. And Dolly said, laughing, I said that when women's liberation came out, that I was the first person to burn my bra. And it took the fire department three days to put the fire out. In 1967, she came out with the song, Just Because I'm a Woman, at the height of the movement. And to me, that is making a pretty big feminist statement. The song is about sexual double standards for men and women. While there are a few hits that Dolly did not write, the majority of the songs that Dolly performs, she wrote herself. Here are the lyrics for that song now. I can see you're disappointed by the way you look at me, and I'm sorry that I'm not the woman you thought I'd be. 
Yes, I've made mistakes, but listen and understand, my mistakes are no worse than yours, just because I'm a woman. So when you look at me, don't feel sorry for yourself. Just think of all the shame you might have brought somebody else. Just let me tell you this, then we'll both know where we stand. My mistakes are no worse than yours, just because I'm a woman. Now a man will take a good girl and he'll ruin her reputation. But when he wants to marry, well, that's a different situation. He'll just walk off and leave her to do the best she can while he looks for an angel to wear his wedding band. Now I know that I'm no angel, if that's what you thought you'd found. I was just the victim of a man that let me down. In a 1978 interview, she said, I've done things in the past that I thought at the time was a mistake. I have changed my thinking a lot about what I'm supposed to feel guilty over and what I'm not. I do the best I can. According to Jane Fonda, you underestimate Dolly at your own peril. It never crossed Dolly's mind that she couldn't be successful because she was a woman. In fact, she saw that as her strength. I don't know of many other entertainers who have shown such a dramatic display of extreme strength and extreme femininity cohesively at the same time. Let's get into Dolly's early childhood. Dolly was born on January 19, 1946, in a one-room cabin on the banks of Little Pigeon River in Pittman Center, Tennessee. And if that in and of itself doesn't sound like a country song, I don't know what does. Her mother, A.V. Lee Caroline, and her father, Robert Lee Parton, had 12 kids together, and Dolly was the fourth child. She said that being the fourth kid down meant that she didn't get as much attention, and she was someone who needed a lot of attention— Same girl, same. Here's a list of those 12 siblings. (laughs) Willa Dean was born in 1940, David in 1942, Coy in 1943, Dolly, like I said, 1946. Robert Jr. was born in 1948. Stella was born in 1949. And Stella was also a country singer and songwriter in her own right and had a series of singles that reached the charts in the mid to late 70s, with her biggest hit being I Want to Hold You in My Dreams in 1975. Cassie was born in 1951, Randy in 1953. And Randy was a big part of Dolly's business as well. He was a singer in his own right as well, but he also played bass for his sister, Dolly. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2021, I believe, from cancer. Larry was born and deceased in July of 1955. Floyd, born in 1957, who passed away in 2018. And then Floyd's twin, Frida, also born in 1957. Then lastly, Rachel, who was born in 1959. And the youngest, Rachel Parton Dennison, was an actress, and she was also a very talented makeup artist, often doing Dolly's makeup for her performances. She is best known for her only acting role in the ABC sitcom Incarnation of 9 to 5 that came out in 1982, where Rachel played her sister Dolly's role from the movie. Rachel told People Magazine in an interview before the show premiered, I'm sure people will compare me to Dolly. It's only human nature. The show also starred Rita Marino and Valerie Curtin, and I need to see if it's on Amazon or Hulu or something. It only ran for 33 episodes and was canceled in 1983, even though the series initially had very impressive ratings. 
Dolly's whole family was very musical, and Rachel said that of her childhood, singing was like breathing at home. Dolly's mother in particular was very musical, and most of her mother's family played some sort of musical instrument, and that was also the main form of entertainment for the Parton family. They were incredibly poor and didn't have a TV set or anything like that, so they would sing storytelling songs to each other. Dolly really enjoyed this and even began writing her own songs to perform for her family to entertain them. Her family was also of the Pentecostal religion, and the small town where she's from was very based in that religion as well. Some of her first performances were in the church, and her family saw how good she was and how much she wanted to be a star. Her uncle, Bill Owens, got her a guitar when she was seven years old, and she learned to play. By the age of 10, she did her first official live performance and put out a record. Her first band consisted mostly of family members, including her uncle, Bill Owens, that I mentioned. The audience loved her, and she was hooked. She turned to her uncle when she was done and said, I'm going to be a star, aren't I? That was the moment she knew what she wanted to do with the rest of her life. Her first song was called Puppy Love, which was released when she was 13 years old. The record did so well that she was invited to perform at the Grand Ole Opry, which is essentially like the Broadway of country music, if you're not aware. There, she met Johnny Cash, who liked Little Dolly a lot, and told her to follow her instincts with her career, which is pretty amazing for a grown man to tell a, like, 10-year-old, 13-year-old girl, however old she was when she performed at the Grand Ole Opry, to be like, hey, follow your instincts. Like, you're good. Look out for yourself. I think that everybody needs a mentor like that in any career that they're going into. To have someone else tell you to trust yourself and that you're doing good with what you've already begun is has got to be a really, really great feeling. She graduated high school in 1964, and the day after graduation, she moved to Nashville. She beat me there. I waited about a month and a half after I turned 18 to move to L.A., kind of around the same time that, you know, college and film school started and all of that. But I always say that as well, because I moved out here without I didn't have a dorm to live in or a food plan or anything. I just moved into this one bedroom apartment. I didn't have a car. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know where I was. My mom stayed with me for like maybe a week and then was like, all right, see ya. Good luck. And I just had to kind of figure it out on my own, and it seems like Dolly really did the same thing for herself. Although she did get really lucky, because the very first day she was in Nashville, she went to a laundromat called Wishy Washy. There, she met a handsome young man named Carl Dean. She liked this man because, unlike many others, she said, while he talked to me, he looked at my face instead of her other assets. She said he seemed to be genuinely interested in finding out who I was and what I was about. They were together for two years before they snuck off one weekend to tie the knot in 1966 to the dismay of the record company. The only person in attendance was Dolly's mother, except for the pastor and his wife who performed the service. She told Playboy in 1978, I like the way he loves me, his understanding of me and the things I do, the way he lets me be free and lets me be me. And that, everybody, is couple goals right there. That's the bare minimum of what you need. Dolly kept the marriage a secret for a whole year in order to show her record company that she could work and be successful and still be a married woman. Though Dolly doesn't use the last name Dean professionally, she uses the name on official paperwork like passports, and she sometimes uses Dean when signing contracts. 
And Carl is a bit of an enigma. Many people have never seen him or you mentioned the name like in the documentary, they were asking Dolly's band members about Carl. They were like, tell me about Carl Dean. And they were like, Carl Dean, Carl Dean. Like, why do I know that name? They're like, oh, yeah, Dolly's husband. Pretty much no one has ever seen him. But in a 1979 interview that Dolly did with Cosmopolitan, they caught a quick glimpse of him and described him as, quote, tall and good looking, rather like a young Gregory Peck. He has a way of moving his angular body so that he seems to come toward you in sections. He is a fan of television and the nightclub comic Steve Martin. I, too, am a fan of Steve Martin. I like you, Carl. Carl rarely shows up for performances and doesn't travel with Dolly, and he seems like a really, really private person. But Dolly is also a really private person and keeps things close to the vest. In the documentary, Jane was talking about how Lily and Dolly would prepare for 9 to 5 by having these pajama parties and hang out together and get a little bit personal with each other. And Jane said that she never saw Dolly without her wig, and she never shared any details of her private life with those around her. But Jane did meet Carl once when she spent the night at the Dean Parton household, and he made her fried green tomatoes for breakfast, which she had never had before. So he sounds like probably a quiet and reserved, but very like peaceful, grounding presence. He's also incredibly good looking. (laughs) To me, this also seems like a really healthy boundary that she and Carl have set. The two seem to really rely on each other and love each other so much, and they have been together now for over 50 years. To celebrate their 50th anniversary, they renewed their vows in 2016. Early on, the couple had discussed the possibility of having children, but they both decided that parenthood was not in the cards for them. Dolly said, When my husband and I were dating, and then when we got married, we just assumed we would have kids. We weren't doing anything to stop it. In fact, we thought maybe we would. We have even had names if we did, but it didn't turn out that way. In an interview with Oprah in 2021, she explained that, Since I had no kids and my husband was pretty independent, she was allowed to have the freedom to achieve her dreams as a country star. So I think a big part of my whole success is the fact that I was free to work. She does, however, think that she would have been a wonderful mother, but she says, I would probably have given up everything else because I would have felt guilty about that if I'd left them. Everything would have changed. I probably wouldn't have been a star. Dolly also suffers from endometriosis, which is a very painful condition that can lead to infertility. She underwent a partial hysterectomy in 1984 to treat her symptoms, a procedure which removes the entire uterus and part of the cervix. This was allegedly a very challenging time for Dolly, and she experienced depression and suicidal thoughts. Since she is not a mother herself, she sees herself as everyone's mother. She says, I didn't have children because I believe God didn't mean for me to have kids, so everybody's kids could be mine, so I could do things like Imagination Library, a nonprofit that provides free books to preschoolers, because if I hadn't had the freedom to work, I wouldn't have done all the things I've done. She and Carl also helped raise several of Dolly's younger siblings in Nashville, leading to Dolly's nieces and nephews to refer to Carl and Dolly as Uncle Peepaw and Aunt Granny. And this is actually something that I'd heard before, the Aunt Granny, Aunt Granny thing. Um, I had a friend in college whose dad worked with Dolly in the 70s as like one of her music managers when she was with Monument Records. And Dolly, and Dolly treated my friend like she was one of her grandkids or nieces. And 
I'm pretty sure that she called her Aunt Dolly or Auntie Granny or something like that as well. And I wonder, I feel like Dolly is even her godmother. I know that she's also Miley Cyrus's, but I think that she might be my friend Marley's godmother as well. I was going to reach out to her this week, but it's been like 10 years since I've talked to her and I didn't want to just reach out and be like, hey, talk to me about Dolly Parton right now. So I'm just kind of going off what I remember, but I was so jealous because she had these two friends in my class that she was like really, really close with and they stayed friends, you know, long after film school was over and things like that. And I once saw a picture on Facebook of them hanging out with Dolly Parton at her house and I was so fucking jealous but yeah I've heard nothing but great things about her personally and she really does seem to like everyone she meets becomes like a special person to her and she just wants to care for people and love people and make people feel good about themselves and that's like one of my favorite qualities in another person and something that I always aspire to do myself. Before we move on to the rest of Dolly's story let's take a quick commercial break. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. All right, we're back. Now, obviously, Dolly didn't move to Nashville to find a guy and get married. She moved to Nashville to make big moves in her career with her uncle, Bill Owens, support. She signed with Monument Records in 1965 at the age of 19. She learned quickly that you had to stand up for yourself at this time as a country girl who looked like a dumb blonde, but Dolly used her persona to her advantage and never doubted her abilities as an artist or a businesswoman. I was so excited to see that Linda Perry was one of the talking heads for the documentary because she is a producer and songwriter that Max has actually worked for in the past by setting up her guitars for her and doing some tech work and things like that. And um, it was funny. It kind of felt like an old friend popping on the screen, even though I've never met her and she seems super intimidating. Anyway, I had no idea that she was a big Dolly fan because she doesn't really scream Dolly Parton to me. She's like super rough around the edges and has face tattoos and stuff but in the documentary linda said she's mastered the design of how to be a woman and succeed in this business without making a man feel bad in fact without anybody making anybody feel bad 
One of her first hit songs was Dumb Blonde, which is really quite a way to start your career and super smart of Dolly. The song goes, Just because I'm blonde, don't think I'm dumb. Because this dumb blonde ain't nobody's fool. Dolly's big break came when she received a letter from Porter Wagoner, a popular country singer and host of The Porter Wagoner Show in 1967, asking her to replace Norma Jean on the show, who was known as The Girl Singer. Porter Wagoner was a pretty big deal at the time, and he was responsible for bringing country music to a much wider audience across the United States, when before the genre was mostly prominent in the South. He offered Dolly $60,000 a year to appear on the show, which was way more money than she had ever seen in her entire life. Working as a songwriter at Monument only made her $50 a week. She accepted his deal to be on the show and also agreed to sign onto the same record company as Wagoner, RCA Records. Her first appearance on the Porter Wagoner show was on September 15, 1967, and she had 4 million people watching her performance. She was received with mixed reviews from the audience as they were so sad to see Norma Jean was no longer on the show as she had been part of it for seven years before she left abruptly. They also didn't like Dolly's higher register and found it childish and jarring compared to Norma's voice. Audiences would demand, Norma Jean, Norma Jean, and the Jean loyalists would boo Dolly on stage. These moments would leave Dolly in tears as she left the stage. However, this sadness gave her the motivation to make them forget Norma Jean and work hard to win them over. Wagoner noticed her struggling, so he suggested that they begin singing duets together, making her a headliner of the show. Like magic, the duets won the audience to Dolly's side. Because of Wagoner and Dolly's different ranges, their voices complemented each other well. Their debut song was called The Last Thing on My Mind, which shot to the top of country music charts. The duo reigned supreme in country music The duo reigned supreme in the country music world over the next several years. In addition to their chemistry on stage, fans speculated about their personal relationship off stage, which also bolstered their popularity. However, Wagner was linked to several country music singers, and Dolly always denied any alleged affair rumors with Wagner. She has said that she did love him and was grateful to him for the opportunity that he had given her, though. While the two worked together seamlessly on stage, sometimes they butted heads off stage. Dolly said, We had a very passionate, stormy, and, at the start, loving relationship. As the years went by and we begun to disagree strongly, we lost much of the warmth and affection and respect for each other during that time and for many years after the split. Before we talk about their downfall, though, Dolly was skyrocketing in fame thanks to the show, and she wanted to ride that fame into a solo career. She struggled to reach the country charts with her solo singles, though, and Wagoner suggested she record the more up-tempo song Mule Skinner Blues by Jimmy Rogers in 1971. This song shot to the top of the country charts, peaking at number three. It also changed audiences from the opinion that she was a high-pitched little girl to seeing her as a powerful and serious entertainer. But Dolly's success made Wagoner increasingly jealous and insecure, as his solo work rarely made the top 40 in the country charts anymore. At first, it was Dolly who was learning from Wagoner, but now her star was surpassing his, and he didn't like it. According to Dolly, he became very competitive, possessive, and intimidated. The show's environment became more and more toxic, and Dolly felt conflicted. 
On the one hand, she had Wagner to thank for much of her success. However, she never felt that he discovered her, and she had been on her own once before, and she knew that she could do it again. In an interview from 2002, Wagner said, Occasionally we would have a run-in about something, but I always won, because I'm the boss. I'm the one who signs the check. What an ass. Dolly once approached Wagner asking if she could have her own show, but of course he wouldn't listen, let alone talk to her without screaming. She was also trying to express to him that it was time for her to leave in general, but he was absolutely impossible to talk to about anything at this point. So to express how she felt to Wagner, Dolly did what she did best. She wrote a song. She wanted a song that showed her sincere love and respect that she had for Porter Wagoner to help him see her side of things. Porter claims that she wrote the song because he asked her to write more love songs, which he did, but Dolly said that she wrote the song to get him to finally listen to her, and I buy Dolly's story. One day, she went up to him and said, If you ain't going to listen to me, will you listen to this song? That song was, I will always love you. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. And so I'll go, but I know. I'll think of you each step of the way, and I will always love you. I will always love you. Wagoner, with tears streaming down his face, told her it was the best song she had ever written. He was okay with her moving on, as long as he could have the record, I Will Always Love You. Other people wanted the record too, including Elvis Presley, but Elvis's manager wasn't willing to pay Dolly well enough for the song and wanted to take royalties, so she declined. They say this is the best business decision that Dolly has ever made. In regards to Whitney's version, she said, I thought it was the most unbelievable thing I'd ever heard. I'd never even believe my little song could be done like that. People say, well, she claims it's her record, and I said, it is her record. It's my song, but it's most definitely her record. It didn't sound like that when I had it. She made me rich. Also in 1967, Dolly released the song The Bridge, a very sad and powerful song that was reminiscent of the songs she learned growing up. She had actually written it when she was still a teenager back home, sitting on a little old bridge about a girl who was heartbroken after the love of her life left her. Turns out, this girl was pregnant with his child, and at the end of the song, she steps off the bridge. The music in the song ends abruptly. It's haunting. Dolly says, you don't hear the water splash, but you know she went. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, 1967 was also the year that she released the song Just Because I'm a Woman, and I'm going to read the last little section of that song now. Now you know that I'm no angel, if that's what you thought you'd found. I was just the victim of a man that let me down. Yes, I've made mistakes, but listen and understand. My mistakes are no worse than yours, just because I'm a woman. No, my mistakes are no worse than yours, just because I'm a woman. Dolly says, It's really about women taking responsibility for themselves and not wanting to be blamed for everything that happens or to think that we don't have some power and that we can't stand up and speak out for ourselves. In 1977, Dolly released the album Here You Come Again, an absolute classic, with its lead single with the same name making huge country and mainstream success. It topped the country charts for five consecutive weeks and peaked at number three on the pop charts, and it was her first record to sell over a million copies. When speaking about stepping into different genres, Dolly said, 
I don't ever want to get myself pigeonholed, where people think I cannot do anything but one thing, or that they put me in a place to where I'm not allowed to. I won't allow that to happen either, because I love being able to express myself in any way I feel like it. Suddenly, Dolly was a huge star, and you were seeing her everywhere, and she made many different TV appearances on shows like The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson once asked her why she bought her family's little cabin in the hills of Tennessee, and she said, Well, every now and then, a girl just wants to go pee off the porch. She also received a CMA Award in 1978 for Entertainer of the Year. She also won the Grammy in 1978 for Best Female Country Vocal Performance for Here You Come Again. Her fame also made her incredibly desirable in the media. Playboy reached out to Dolly many times to pose nude, but she turned down all of their offers. Instead, she wore a Playboy bunny outfit on the cover of the October 1978 issue. People were often very critical of her appearance. In the documentary, they showed a clip from an interview with Barbara Walters, and the conversation goes like this. Barbara, quite sternly, almost like a mother scolding a child, You don't have to look like this. You're beautiful. You don't have to wear blonde wigs. You don't have to wear the extreme clothes, right? Dolly says, No, it's really a choice. I don't like to be like everybody else. I've often made this statement that I would never stoop so low as to be fashionable. That's the easiest thing in the world to do. So I just decided I would do something that would at least get their attention. Once they get past the shock of the ridiculous way I look and all that, then they would see there was parts of me to be appreciated. And show business is a money-making joke, and I've always liked telling jokes, you know? Barbara said, But do you ever feel that you're a joke? That people make fun of you? What the fuck, bitch? Dolly said, Oh, I know they make fun of me. But actually, after all these years, the people you know have thought the joke was on me. But it's actually on the public. I know exactly what I'm doing, and I can change it at any time. Lily Tomlin says of Dolly, She is who she is even though she isn't. Dolly said that where she was from, there was, quote, I don't know what you call a loose woman. And as a kid, she used to see her walking around wearing short skirts and thinking she was so pretty. Her mama thought she was trash, though. So when she grew up, she said she wanted to be trash. This is funny, and it reminds me of something I say at work because I like to collect the trash at the end of the day a lot. And I always say, I'm trashy, not classy. (laughs) On a 2003 episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show, Oprah asked Dolly about the kind of plastic surgery she'd undergone, and she told Oprah that cosmetic surgery was imperative to keeping with her famous image. She has often joked, It takes a lot of money to look this cheap. When asked about future surgeries, she said, If I see something sagging, bagging, or dragging, I'll get it nipped, tucked, or sucked. To each their own. You do you, girl. On an episode of The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, Dolly talked about her breasts. She also talked about how her breasts were her greatest pride and joy, so much so that she has insured them for $300,000 per breast. Although this has seemed like a bit of a myth. I'm not really sure of how true this actually is. She herself has said that they're all part of her persona, admitting that her boobies have also been somewhat of a shtick. An article for Vogue wrote, It must feel good to take a break from the idea that, as women, our bodies have to define us at every given moment, which is so rarely required of men. How we look is inevitably part of performance art, and it's a relief to take the whole enterprise a little less seriously when we can. Part of Dolly's magic is that she still remains, in so many ways, a mystery, despite putting it, or them, all out there. 
Dolly is very conscious of herself and has created a mythic but very real character to share with the world. It's best exemplified in her song, Backwoods Barbie. I grew up poor and ragged, just a simple country girl. I wanted to be pretty more than anything in the world, like Barbie or the models in the Fredericks catalog. From rags to wishes in my dreams, I could have it all. I'm just a backwoods Barbie, too much makeup, too much hair. Don't be fooled by thinking that the goods are not all there. Don't let these false eyelashes lead you to believe that I'm as shallow as I look, cause I run true and deep. I've always been misunderstood because of how I look. Don't judge me by the cover, cause I'm a real good book. So read into it what you will, but see me as I am. The way I look is just a country girl's idea of glam. I'm just a backwoods Barbie in a push-up bra and heels. I might look artificial, but where it counts, I'm real. And I'm all dolled up and hoping for a chance to prove my worth. And even backwoods Barbies get their feelings hurt. Linda Perry sees the two dollies as being like two different people who work as a team. Between 1974 and 1980, Dolly worked with other artists on duets such as Olivia Newton-John, Emmylou Harris, and Linda Ronstadt. In 1980, Jane Fonda approached Dolly about appearing in her film, Nine to Five. Jane had just gone to see Lily in her one-woman show and gotten her car to drive home when she turned on the radio in her car and heard Dolly's song, Two Doors Down, and she said to Stephen Colbert, I suddenly got an image of Dolly Parton sitting at a typewriter and I thought, that would be something to have Dolly Parton in her first movie playing a secretary in a movie that, among many other things, is going to touch upon sexual harassment. She's perfect. Dolly agreed to join the cast, but only if she could write the film's theme song. Remember when movies had theme songs? My Heart Will Go On, Danger Zone, Eye of the Tiger, Don't You Forget About Me? Why don't we do those anymore? When talking about the creation of the song, Jane was telling Stephen Colbert, One memorable moment that Lily and I talk about from time to time was the morning Dolly came to work and motioned us over, and just outside the set she said, I've just written the song. And she used her long nails as a washboard, and she sang 9 to 5, and Lily and I looked at each other, and we had goosebumps. We knew this was not just a movie song. This was an anthem. Dolly thought that tapping her long acrylic nails together sounded a lot like a typewriter, and used that as the base of the song. The song went to number one on the Billboard Top 100, as well as the country charts, and was nominated for several awards. It was nominated for an Academy Award. It won the People's Choice Award for Favorite Motion Picture Song. It won the 1982 Grammy for Country Song of the Year. She also won Female Country Vocalist of the Year and was nominated for four Grammys total that year. It also went certified platinum by the RIAA. In regards to the movie, her manager thought that she was a natural actress, but she was apprehensive about it. She thought that it would have to be something that was her, since she didn't see herself as an actress. <laughs> she said if it was a hit, then she would get the same kind of glory and fame as Lily and Jane, but if it flopped, she could blame it on them. <laughs> 9 to 5, which you will probably be shocked to know that I've never seen. Um, for those of you who haven't been listening that long, I haven't seen most of the movies that you love. I'm sorry about it. But I'm definitely going to be watching it this week and really wish that I'd had the time to sneak the movie in before recording this episode. But 9 to 5 is about three female employees of a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot and find a way to turn the tables on him. 
Dolly's character is sexy, but she's actually a very innocent Southern girl who is married and shocked when her boss begins to make moves on her, so much like Dolly in her real life. The other girls in the office don't like her because they think she's a floozy, and the boss has been spreading word that they slept together when they hadn't. The film was an idea that Jane Fonda had had after she started her own production company and said she modeled Dolly's character off of her as a person. The three women all really liked each other and had an automatic camaraderie. Jane was super political, Lily was a lesbian, and Dolly thought she was in the middle, according to Lily. Jane said, you cannot finish a day with Dolly without laughing so hard that you have to cross your legs. The film went on to be the second highest grossing film of the year, which was a big deal then and would be a big deal now with a women-led film. Between 1981 and 1985, she had 12 top 10 hits, and half of them had reached number one. Amongst her sassy, fun, and dancey songs, she always throws in the ones that tug at your heartstrings. Hard Candy Christmas is a song that shows she is still the little girl from the country. Little Sparrow is haunting and beautiful. And the song Little Andy, about an unhoused little girl and her dog who need a place to stay and end up dying in the home of someone who took her in, will absolutely destroy you. Apparently, according to her guitarist, they never didn't perform this song live. Dolly wrote one of her most famous songs in 1973, which is, of course, Jolene. The guitar riff in the beginning is a fucking classic, and instead of a steel guitar, they're using a more standard pop production rather than using country instruments, making this one of Dolly's first crossovers into pop music. Thanks, Max, for helping explain that to me. <laughs> of the song Jolene, Dolly said, I wrote this song about 20 years ago about this woman down in Nashville who worked at the bank. She was trying to take care of my husband while I was out on the road. Well, that didn't go over too big with me. I fought that red-headed woman like a wildcat. She jerked my wig off and almost beat me to death with it. But I kept my husband, I got that sucker home, and I beat the tar out of him. Of course, with songs like this, Dolly has been rumored to have been intimately with many different men over the years, as has Carl been questioned about his affairs because of this song, and people have questioned the fidelity of their marriage. And Dolly said all this stuff on stage, but she's such a jokester that it's hard to tell if her husband actually stepped out on her or if this woman was just a little bit too interested. However, that's not what this song is really about. She mentions her man, but the song is something she is saying to the other woman and engaging with her. When discussing affair rumors, she explains that she and Carl aren't jealous people. She said that she would rather not know if Carl cheated on her and vice versa. In that Playboy interview from 1978, she said, I would just say it is as much my fault as his. I would probably cry and pout for a day for the attention of it, and then it would be over. To me, life is life, and people is people. You cannot control every emotion that you have. Back to her career, Dolly came out with a few bluegrass records in the 1980s, a style that she thinks suits her best. These records were critically acclaimed, but they weren't as much of a commercial success as her popular albums. She became what is known as more of a heritage act after that time and was doing still some shows and things like that, but they weren't selling out. The bluegrass stuff was not bringing in the crowds that she used to and things like that until her career got a second wind when she met a man named Danny Nozzle, which is a hilarious name, didn't realize until I said it out loud. 
who became her new manager in 2004. He had done a ton of research and analytics and all of that kind of stuff, and he felt that he knew the perfect formula in order to take Dolly from that quote-unquote heritage act and making her a superstar again. She again began touring globally and working really hard, putting out new music and doing just so much work. I feel like within the last 15 years, Dolly Parton has been a huge part of the media and my life, which is amazing to think about since she has maintained that star power for so long. However, as of 2022, Dolly is done touring, but says that she still loves to perform live. Dolly is now 76, going on 77 years old in a few days here, and in her 60-some years of entertaining, she has created a theme park, Dollywood, has been nominated for an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, and has been a major player in many philanthropic endeavors, including Imagination Library, raising money for cancer, supporting wildfire victims, as well as being a major proponent for the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. Dolly donated $1 million toward research at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and encouraged those who could afford it to make similar donations. Her large donation helped in the critical early stages of development for the Moderna vaccine. Dolly was vaccinated herself in March of 2021 and made a video performing a song to celebrate it set to the tune of Jolene. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Cause once you're dead, then it's a bit too late. She has also turned down the Presidential Medal of Freedom twice due to her husband's ongoing struggle with Alzheimer's disease and the ongoing pandemic. In a response to a 2021 proposal by the Tennessee legislature to erect a statue of Parton, she released a statement asking the legislature to remove the bill from consideration, saying, Given all that is going on in the world, I don't think putting me on a pedestal is appropriate at this time. And that's Dolly Parton as of right now today. I'm so glad that I was able to take the time to learn more about this person who I've always really enjoyed as a personality, as a singer, as a songwriter. And I've always known that she had a lot of really feisty and very feminist views, even though I was also aware that she doesn't really like that word, which has made her kind of complicated for me. So the more I learned about her and showed how she is truly exempt Amplified such a quote-unquote feminist lifestyle throughout her career and her life and just the way that she lives her life to me screams feminist louder than necessarily wanting everyone in the world to know about it you know I think that Dolly is who she is and she is a kind loving supportive activist woman And her music has changed the course of so many other women's careers as well. If there was no Dolly Parton, maybe there wouldn't have been a Shania Twain or even a Taylor Swift. She showed all of these different female musicians, too, that you could cross over from country into other genres of music. You could be an actress. You could be a businesswoman. You could even help during a global pandemic. You can help save millions of lives. Dolly is an absolute badass and one of my heroes for sure. 
If there are any topics that you want me to cover in the future, please reach out to me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on the Instagram page at angryneighborhoodfeminist. If you enjoyed the show and think that others would too, please go over to your Apple Podcasts app and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. You can also rate the show on Spotify. If you're interested in wearing any of the Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist merch, there is a link in the show notes as well. Also, I just want to remind you all that the Feminist Book Club is happening on Patreon starting on February 8th. I will be getting the Patreon account set up this week, and I will share a link with you all so you can be sure to sign up or subscribe or however you go about doing all of that so that you can get the first episode on February 8th in your feed. I also want to give a big shout out to my amazing boyfriend, Max Ram, for creating the music for this episode and for doing it on such short notice and being so talented and amazing. Thank you so much. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.